Welcome back to the 90 Days New Podcast. Today we are looking at the short book of Philippians. And uh, Philippians is going to be covered by us in one day. It's a little bit of an extra reading day for you because we've been reading three chapters a day approximately, but today you have to read four. I didn't want to leave one lingering chapter at the end of the reading plan, so we just squeezed them all together and hopefully it's not and uh, too much of a burden to get through those four, but uh, it will be beneficial to read this book in one setting. I think sometimes it's good to slow down and take uh, a verse-by-verse approach to interpreting God's Word, but sometimes it's good to read an entire book in one setting just to get the overall uh, bird's-eye view of what's going on. And so as we look at the book of Philippians, one of the things that you'll take note of is that this book is written in some trying circumstances. Um, Some books, Paul's writing and everything's fine, you know, for the most part. Paul goes through a lot of troubles, but um, there are some times where he's writing just on his own as he's traveling. And there are other times where he writes from a prison cell, and this is one of those occasions. He's writing from a prison cell. He's been um, chained up, and the church at Philippi is concerned about Paul. They're very saddened by the situation that he's in. They don't know whether he's going to live on or whether he's going to die. There's rumors going around that he might lose his life because of his imprisonment, and oftentimes that was the case. Uh, The Romans would sometimes put people to death if they thought that they were uh, invoking an an uprising, um, an insurrection. Um, They would respond to set an example for the rest of the citizens so they they would not in turn do likewise. And the Philippian church, they have no idea what's going to become of Apostle Paul. They love him. They care for him. They've even sent uh, a servant, Epaphroditus, to bring gifts and to uh, um, bring some comfort to Paul in his imprisonment. And uh, while Epaphroditus is there, he gets sick and it seems like he's going to die, which just adds sorrow upon sorrow. And so there's a lot of sadness that encompasses this, uh, encompasses this letter. But the interesting thing is, is as you read through it, you're going to see some language that does not depict these troubling circumstances. In fact, you're going to see language that calls on the recipients of this letter to rejoice and to have joy. And that seems to be one of the major themes of this letter because Paul's telling them like, hey, the yeah, the situation seems troubling, but he says, yes, I will rejoice in verse 18. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And uh, so while he has full confidence he's going to be let go, he also is okay if he dies. He says that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he's, he's conflicted. He wants to live on and serve the churches and continue to help them grow. But he has such a love for Christ that he doesn't mind dying and going to be with him, which is the attitude we should all have as believers. We should look at our life and use it while we have it, but not grasp onto it so tightly that we are afraid that it will slip away because we need to understand and we need to have a a trust and confidence in the fact that when a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
And uh, that is a comfort that we have as we live this life, knowing that when it's gone, it's okay. And in fact, it's part of the grand plan. And while you shouldn't hate life or uh, really neglect your life, it, it is precious, it is given by God, um, but you use it while you have it, knowing that it will slip away one day, but it will, as a believer, take you into eternal life. And so he continues to encourage them to rejoice. And uh, this is where we get that passage, uh, rejoice, I tell you again, rejoice. And uh, that's just kind of funny, considering the fact that he is in prison and considering the fact that he has gone through such pain. Yeah, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 is the one I was thinking of. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He goes on in verse 10 to say, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Um, he uses that word rejoice in chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, 2.28, he writes that they may rejoice at seeing him again. And 2.18, be glad and rejoice with me. So on and on and on. There's all these passages that have this word rejoice and joy uh, because he's encouraging them, even in troubling circumstances, to count their blessings and to recognize that God's in control and things are going to work out for the glory of God in the end. There are some other features of this book that we might want to consider looking at uh, another look at this topic of unity is crucial to understanding this book. I already talked about it with the Corinthians. I already talked about it with the Ephesians. Um, but it seems that this is so central to Paul's ministry that the church would be unified. And it could be primarily because he is at this initial starting point of the church where Jews and Gentiles, which have been divided um, theologically and geopolitically for so long, there's so much division between them that when they both come into this new institution, the church, they come into this new uh, covenant with one another, it, it's difficult. It's really a struggle to put aside these predispositions that they've carried for so long and to unite to one another as a family. And, uh, but I think even beyond that, it's just human nature that we allow petty things to get in the way of our love for our brothers and sisters. Even in the church today, we see divisions over little things that should never divide anybody. And so I don't think it's any accident that every, almost every single letter that Paul writes is completely immersed in language that enforces unity. And one of my favorite passages on unity is actually found in Philippians chapter 2. It says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any at all, if you have any, even the littlest, bittiest shred of encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if, you, if you've ever felt any comfort from love at all, any participation in the Spirit, if you've, if you've ever felt even the slightest little nudge of the Spirit, if you've ever felt in, in any way the power of the Holy Spirit in your life whatsoever, if you've ever had any affection or sympathy, he says this, if any of that's true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so Paul is really laying it on thick here. He, he's really wanting these people to grasp the fact that they have an 
absolute responsibility as a Christian to be united to the brothers and sisters of the faith. Put aside all the other stuff. Lay it aside because it's not important. Yeah, you don't like the music that uh, sister so-and-so likes? Put it aside and love one another. You think potluck should be every other week and they think that potluck should be once a month? Put it aside and love one another. He's, he's, he's saying this and then he backs it up theologically, um, which is kind of the opposite of what we saw in Ephesians. First he started with the theology and he moved to the um, application orthodoxy preceded orthopraxy there. Well, here we almost get a little bit of a flip-flop on that. Uh, he first appeals to them what he wants them to do, but then he gives them the theological underpinning of all that, why you should be like-minded and united in love, why you can take a position of humility. And he says this, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. So he calls on us to demonstrate humility and be like-minded and take a lowly position and count others greater than ourselves. And then he says that Jesus did this. He was equal with God, but he didn't grasp a hold of that equality and, uh, you know, keep his position in heaven where he was experiencing the same realm with God, the same everything with God the Father, but rather he took a lowly position and came down here among sinners and lived among us, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think he puts that last part in there just to encourage you that if you take a lowly position now, you're not going to stay in a lowly position, uh, that there is an exaltation, a, a time of exaltation that will come upon you. Jesus even said, the first will be last and the last will be first. You want to be first, then be last. The disciples came to Jesus and said, who's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven? And he told them to serve one another and to wash each other's feet. And he told them to be humble and lowly because that's the people who will be first in the kingdom. And uh, so right now, as we live out this life in um, the, the church and in this earth in general, um, we should be very sensitive to that, that we need humility and that we need to put others before ourselves. And especially in areas of preferences. That doesn't mean we tolerate uh, heresy or tolerate sinfulness in the church and call it humility and say, oh, I'm just, I'm just a sinner too, so we just have to overlook this sin. No, the Bible tells us to deal with sin, but it does not demand that we fight for our preferences, and it does not demand that we form clicks and unite to people that look like us and sound like us and make the same income as us. Uh, rather, we should be united to everybody in the church to the degree that it is possible. And um, so, so that's what he's calling on. There should be no divisions and schisms in the church. And so we need to uh, 
follow this train of thought that he lays here and that we need to um, form together and to form bonds of peace and brotherhood. Uh, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I got to tell you, I quote this a lot in my house uh, because kids have a tendency to grumble and complain. And I remember memorizing this at some point, do all things without grumbling and complaining, grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Uh, I think one of the things that creates division in the church is a lot of grumbling and complaining. And grumbling and complaining stems from discontent, when we are not content with what God has provided for us and what he's given us. We're discontent because we look at the church up the street and we want to be like them. Or we look at uh, something that another church has, a ministry that they do and are successful at it, and we want to take that and implement it ourselves. Or um, you name one thing or another, and certainly there's always things that a church can do differently. There's reasons to change, and there's certainly no problem with suggesting to leadership, hey, let's do this or let's do that. Uh, but when you get so discontent that your heart is hardened against your brother and sister and you begin grumbling and complaining and spreading that like a disease through the church and you sow discord among the brothers, that's when things get out of hand and that's where unity is not being lived out. And so we need to make sure that our language is joyful. I mean, that's what he's calling for here in this book, to be joyful, to rejoice, and to not give in to this idea that we're discontent. And that's really how Paul finishes his letter. He says, you know, things are looking troubling. Things are um, difficult at the time, but I'm going to press forward. I'm going to press on. And he calls on others to do the same. And he, he points out the fact that he's been through really, like, exalted periods in his life where he was a Pharisee that was above all, but he's also been you know, left for dead on the side of the road. And uh, then we get to this famous passage in Philippians 4.13 where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he says that because he's been through the trials and he's been on the mountaintops. He's been on, in the ups and the downs, the, the mountains and the valleys of life. And he's continued to serve Christ through it all. And that's what he's appealing for the Philippian church to do. He's saying, listen, please, it doesn't matter if hardship comes, serve Christ. It doesn't matter if things get easy and comfortable, serve Christ. Whether you are on the mountaintop or whether you're in the valley, whether you're being persecuted or whether you're living in peace, serve Christ. And I love this uh, closing passage here, uh, beginning in verse 8. He says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You want to have unity in the church? You want to have peace among the brothers and sisters in Christ? Whether it be in the times of difficulty or whether it's in the times of, of tranquility, then we need to fill our minds with true things, with honorable things, with just things, with pure things, with, with lovely content and commendable content, with anything excellent, because what you put in is what you get out. If you sit around and listen to other people grumble and complain, you're going to start grumbling and complaining. I would encourage you, if you are around people like that, people full of negativity, 
that you turn your ear off to them and that you move to a more positive source in your life so that you will reflect something good and something positive for the church to grow by. We'll see you next time on 90 Days Now.